0: Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need.
1: This episode was recorded just over a month ago, and we haven't had a chance to release it, but it is just as relevant today as the day it was recorded. We spoke to Anna Lipman about Labor for Palestine and their work organizing and disrupting alongside other organizations. I won't give too much away, but since that recording, Anna traveled to the West Bank and is joining us in the studio tomorrow to share their experiences. That episode will be out next week, but until then, let's tune in and listen to this important conversation.
0: Welcome, Anna. Can you introduce yourself to the audience, please?
2: My name's uh, Anna Lippman. I'm a rank and file member of QP three nine zero three at York University, and I'm a uh, member of the coordinating committee of uh, Labor for Palestine.
0: I didn't know you were QP three nine zero three. That's where I cut my teeth organizing for the first time over at York as a student for one of the many strikes that I. Yes. survived. <laughs> so w- welcome again, Anna. I'm so excited to have you on because our audience will know we've name dropped Labor for Palestine quite a few times. And we've been watching your work, especially, obviously, in the last two months. But you did not just appear on October 7th, just like the conflict did not. Labor for Palestine has been around for some time now. Can you give us a a little history lesson in the organization that we're seeing now,
2: yeah, for sure so um labor for Palestine actually started uh back in two thousand six, so it's almost uh twenty years old by now. It's been you know a, a bit on and off in in the last few decades um but sort of the the latest iteration really came out in uh 2017 a bunch of folks across different unions across canada uh really came together to say like we we got to start reviving this uh really powerful part of our labor movement and so we've been sort of you know plugging away since then and then obviously on on october 7th suddenly uh the the work became a lot more sort of um salient to uh to folks you know
0: and it just it appeared a lot more urgent all of a sudden. Yes. Not, yes to say absolutely. Yeah, not to say there weren't pressing issues before, but I imagine everybody's work in this area of activism took it up a notch. But I'm going to hold you to pre, pre-October pre 7th still, because uh, we've talked a lot about on the show ways to get social movements and labor to work side by side without too many power struggles, and we've not been all that successful historically. So, obviously, this kind of comes from the labor for Palestine is kind of born from this need, right, to have to prioritize social movements, because, you know, Palestine isn't in the collective agreement. Right. Right. It's a bit of a battle getting workers to try to prioritize all kinds of social issues outside of their own battle with their bosses. So what has it been like for Labour for Palestine to try to get in there and get motions passed, you know, at the OFL, at these various conventions and try to kind of awaken labor and to convince them that the resources that they have should be divided between workplace issues and social issues?
2: Yeah, great question. So, um, oh, I want to say maybe about a a year ago, eight months ago, uh, Labor for Palestine launched uh, one of our campaigns, Labor Against Apartheid. Um, That's really been focusing on uh, showing workers here in Canada why this is a workers' issue, what we can really do to, to impact the issue in Palestine from here. And so we have, um, you know, these really great sort of educational workshops that we've been taking to locals, uh, really been chatting with folks about, like, what the labor movement can can add uh, to this struggle. And then, uh, of course, since uh, October 7th, that work has really just been made more sort of timely and expedient. So um, we've actually had some some really wonderful successes in the past, uh, you know, two months or so, supporting uh, different unions, CUPE, CUPW, uh, PSAC, uh, into passing their own sort of resolutions at um, conferences and conventions uh, to really not only show their support for Palestine and the workers of Palestine, but to also commit to things like uh, BDS, the boycott, divestment and sanction movement. You know, also we've seen, which, you know, I think is really great. All these sort of rank and file members really uh, be coming out and, and asking their local and asking their executive, like, why aren't we focusing on this more? And, and so we've really seen some... Uh, We've seen a lot of movement kind of on the issue within like passing of resolutions, really from from coast to coast to coast, which has been heartwarming, I think. So
0: I know the OFL passed uh, a, a critical statement. That wasn't immediately picked up, because I think some people think uh, all unions follow what the OFL tells them to do, and that's absolutely not the case. We wish it was, sort of. Well, it's a complicated relationship, but what it did, it didn't translate into immediate pickup from member unions. So then there were separate battles within these, but as far as I know, and I hope you can add to my list because it's kind of small. I know OPSU and the OSSTF which is Ontario High School Teachers tell tell me you got more to, to share who's on board
2: yeah there's definitely been more resolutions on the labor for palestine website we have this fantastic page that um, not only lists like all these victories and and i promise there's more than the two that you mentioned but um we, also, one of the things that we've been doing to kind of make these victories easier is is sharing the resolutions between unions uh, to make it sort of easier to, to adapt to people's specific kind of union, local, what have you. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, again, I cannot name them, but I promise there has definitely been uh, quite a few resolutions passed. So, you know, every time we sort of uh, hear of one, it's definitely like, not only a major victory, but then it, it really inspires other unions to think like, well, maybe we could do this too. And and one of the things that Labor for Palestine has been doing is helping folks, again, like uh, see the resolutions that are out there and, and craft ones that uh, are kind of specific to them.
0: So, Anna, what I'll do is I'll link to the Victory website there. Cool. And so people can see for yourself. So that way, yeah, you're not put on the spot and having to name them all. because And some victories are not quite measurable either. You don't know the impact that goes beyond the resolutions. Have these resolutions and motions passed translated into bodies at actions?
2: Absolutely. I think that, yeah, right? We have seen, uh, you know, Definitely more so in in the last few months, just the amazing kind of support from the labor sector. I know every time I go out to a protest, there was one here in Toronto on Sunday. We had such a huge labor contingent. um, It was so great to see everyone, you know, marching behind that that Labor for Palestine banner, uh, but also just seeing all those different kind of union flags and and seeing that people really understand that, you know, the fight for equality in Palestine is a fight that impacts all workers, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, no, we've, we've tried to sell that line as much as possible <laughs> here on the show. I hope most people are nodding along as you say that. One of the things that I think is awesome about the blockades of... Not just the arms manufacturers and, you know, adjacent companies, because it takes a million companies to make those fucking warplanes, but also locations like Export and Development Canada and disrupting business as usual there. Because if folks listen back to our last episode, we had Dimitri Lascaris on and he gave us, he tried to answer the question there, you know, what can Canada do, right? Like all these people are like, oh, what are we supposed to do? And we've also had and explained the call from Palestinian workers and the Palestinian resistance where they're very specific in stopping the flow of arms and disrupting business as usual. And I feel as though all of those things that Dimitri and other folks are yelling at Trudeau to do, like what can they do? Anna and friends, so... A Massive coalition, Labor for Palestine, World Beyond War, Independent Jewish Voices, uh, you know, and friends and others. They're doing that where they're doing what the politicians should be doing. Right. They are. So I don't want to steal your thunder, but, you know, watching the video from Pratt and Whitney action this week. So this is an arms manufacturer. They get federal loans, interest-free loans to make bits for warplanes that cause havoc and whatnot and drones. And so these folks shut them down, they pretty much shut that morning shift down. Do you want to tell me how that came about and how it felt to have such a successful action there? Especially, you know, 60 plus days in, you've been asking a lot of of members and and it's just getting stronger.
2: Absolutely. So, you know... I think one of the things that we here in Canada can so clearly see um, is the way that our country is sending and funding and manufacturing the weapons that are literally going to enact this genocide, right? So answering that call from union workers within Palestine to end the arms trade and to stop this business as usual It's a rare thing in a social movement where you actually get direct instructions from the people impacted, right? What a great way for us to respond here, not only as concerned citizens, but also as people in manufacturing, in that labor struggle, right? Last week it was Whitney, uh, before that uh, we did L3 Harris, before that it was Incas. And we've had hundreds of people come out and say, we don't want the labor in Canada going to murder Palestinians, right? And it's such a, you know, self-evident sort of thing to not want. I think that um, it's really brought in this really amazing sort of broad-based coalition um, Again, uh, you know, labor for Palestine, also had the uh, labor against the arms trade um, and world beyond war. So really like um, the the difficult part a lot of times is being able to sort of identify and do that research on like who is doing this manufacturing, who is doing these sales, because you know, they try to keep that stuff quite under wraps so that we don't go and complain and pick it. Right. But, you know, doing that research and finding these really obvious targets, it's such a tangible way to disrupt what's going on halfway across the world, right? And it also really helps build those connections for us here to understand, like, this is a global issue. What is happening in Canada is not separate or removed from what's happening in Israel-Palestine, right? And so really seeing the ways that our two countries who love settler colonialism work together to really uh, enact that policy, um, I think has been drawing lots of people out. Because again, it's, it's so clear, um, it's so wrong, and it's such an easy way to directly respond to the asks of the folks in Palestine, right?
1: Yeah, Canada wants to pretend on the global stage. They like the the image of the the peacekeeper, and exactly, and that as long as we're not the ones directly dropping bombs, that we're not responsible for the man, the the war crimes committed with them. Whether it's uh, by Israel or Saudi Arabia, as another example of Canadian arms that go towards committing war crimes, it's that colonial imagination that that we talked to Tyler Shipley about in a, in a recent episode um, and the complacency that is asked of us to just go along with that. And, and so I, I really admire the active disruption of that and bringing that issue to the forefront because it's something that, yeah, the, the powers that be would much rather keep under wraps.
2: Um, Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, some of the most like frustrating things to me is that the Canadian government like actually awards like L3 Harris and Incas, like all these contracts to do work domestically. So not only are we like as a society totally fine with like sending weapons, but the government is actually, you know, making sure these companies are sustainable, making sure these companies are profitable and, it's, it's that relationship between these companies and the government that, you know, has really led us to say, like, there's something wrong in Canada that, that we need to disrupt and bring attention to, right?
0: And when you think of all those investments that the Canadian government has made in this sector, it starts to make, along with its love affair with colonialism, It starts to make a little bit more sense as to why we've taken such a fucking genocidal position in these times when it's so obvious, when it's been laid bare. I think there's so many Canadians just going, what? Just pure shame in being where we are in our UN votes, in knowing that we supply weapons like we were happy to shame them for weapons to Saudi Arabia but it becomes a little more contentious when we're talking about Israel but now seeing what we're seeing that's people are shocked and the government gets away with saying you know we don't really give aid to Israel there's not a lot of dollars in direct aid in the same way we do to other countries but you dig a little deeper and that's done on purpose right this is buried it requires work and effort to find out who's getting you know interest free loans or straight up funding to create maybe not these weapons but the other parts of their business that allows them to spend time and maybe losses on innovating new ways to kill people and so <laughs> Because that's a big excuse, people. Like, the 20, $20 million in weapons doesn't sound like a lot. But if you know that they're, like, pivotal pieces to the warplanes flying overhead, I'm happy to take those away and see what happens. I don't think that's a drop in the bucket. I think that that is quite disruptive, even one morning shift. Because I want to kind of talk about the workers inside of these places That you're blockading because I think it's easy for us to get really upset and go how can you fucking work for somewhere like that how can you go to work every day and knowingly make weapons and I think in large part and I've not spoken to any of them but you 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 folks did so we'll I'll get there but I imagine they've told themselves like all a lot of people do these are defensive weapons Right. I'm helping nations, Canada, whatever, defend themselves against whatever. You know, almost so many people still defend the the existence of armed forces just parked. (laughs) We're happy if the planes are just parked. We imagine they'll never do anything bad, but we need them. We need them. We need them. We need new ones. Uh, But now we're seeing like what they're doing. So I think these workers have gone. Perhaps they're having a little bit of moral struggle of a, a values struggle and then you folks take the initiative to blockade their workplace and judging from what i heard Aiden say on the picket line there i there was a video there of reporting back from his conversations with workers at the you know at the car windows what we'll, turn around this is what we're doing this for probably a pamphlet slip right and the re- the reaction was actually quite positive. It was kind of like, oh, thank God I don't have to. Well, for me, it'd be like, oh, yeah, I don't have to go to work today. But I'd like to think it was like, yes, I don't have to go to work today. I don't I didn't have to do this, but I I'm turning around and I'm feeling a little bit empowered by turning around and and not working this morning. And, you know, I think maybe you converted a few folks in line there. I think is that part of the battle as well on these lines like the these workers aren't your enemy. The bosses in the BMWs and maybe
2: exactly. Um, you know, I I think anyone who is alive right now understands that. Like, sometimes we got to work jobs that we don't really like because uh, the rent is very very high, right? And and so I think uh, you know having the opportunity to really like talk to workers and help them understand, like, you know what exactly is going on in this factory in this manufacturing place in this company that you're working for even though you're probably just working to you know send your kids to soccer and hockey and pay the rent right like um you know helping folks understand sort of like the the evil that they're participating in i don't imagine anyone's gonna you know quit their job and, uh, you know, I don't know, go, go drive a bus or something. But, um, you know, to to be able to really, like, understand and grapple with, like, what your company is doing, even sort of just planting that seed is so important, right? Because, again, it's, it's the workers that have the power, right? And what would be... You know, even more amazing than an outside picket is what if all the employees inside the company actually decided, hey, we don't want to participate in building these murder weapons, right? And so the the goal, again, is it's to inform and to educate because, you know, we understand that laborers of conscience don't want... To have their labor going to genocide, even though obviously in this capitalist system, you can't just go away from from working, right? Um, and and so to kind of arm them with that knowledge, perhaps help them have those conversations with their coworkers. Like maybe maybe in a month or so, we'll we'll see inside Whitney and Pratt oops, all the all the folks are, are dropping and breaking all the uh, stuff on the manufacturing line, right? Like, uh, so I think that that is the dream goal, you know?
0: At the very least, maybe demotivated them. They're going to work at half half speed from now on. Because, like, yeah, quit and go drive a bus. Well, someone's going to get that job. So I would rather you do what Anna's talking about and put your damn tools down. And it, that's why folks interested in doing blockades and doing this work, you know, keep in mind, like you are actually trying to sway those folks that you're blocking at the same time. No, you're not going to win everyone, but the ideal situation, the people who hold the keys to the ultimate disruption are workers. And I know that's right. Kind of, it's exclusionary to say that, but no one holds the position inside the means of production other than workers. So, to see labor for Palestine having a moment here to really also demonstrate to these workers what solidarity can accomplish, right? That's that's got to be learning on the line as well. That's got to be helping for labor's future goals other than Palestine, because it's been very impressive it's been very impressive what we've seen so far and yeah. Do you want to share any other successes in terms of the blockades? Like I use Pratt and Whitney only cause it seemed to be the most recent, but is this coast to coast? Do you have action?
2: This, this is, um, somewhat coast to coast. It, it, it's, uh, you know, where, where the companies are. Right. So, um, When we did uh, L3 Harris a few weeks ago, um, we also had folks in uh, Quebec and Hamilton um, and and maybe a little further east who were also picketing uh, L3 Harris um, plants and and manufacturing uh, businesses, right? But we've also seen, you know, in Vancouver, some really amazing sort of block-the-boat initiatives where, where dock workers are are refusing to unload or load, uh, you know, ships that are heading for Israel, ships that are bringing these weapons and manufacturing and stuff uh, in order to, to commit this genocide, right? And so, you know, coast to coast, I think we're seeing the, the power of workers uh, in being able to say, like, no, we don't want our labor going to this right and so I think that's really amazing and and again uh, it it the the strategies employed kind of depend on where you are right because alas in Toronto there's there's no ships coming in um but obviously you know folks in Nova Scotia folks in Vancouver like they're perfectly sort of positioned to, to do that sort of solidarity work, right?
0: Absolutely, because now we're seeing a lot of the global armed forces moving to secure the shipping lanes on that side. So it's up to us to stop the ships from ever leaving or getting loaded Longshoremen, I, the terms are all very gendered, but longshore person is so long to say, but uh, are notorious in history for being very effective in these types of movements to blockade the arms trade. And, yeah, it's very heartwarming to see also the amount of networking that now I know you folks have done a lot of work networking beforehand, Palestinian solidarity work requires it, right? It's always been contentious. It's always had massive pushback. And so, but I wanted to ask you, did it take a different form? Like we talked about the the sense of urgency that existed after October 7th, but like you folks are pulling off kind of covert actions. These aren't, we're going to poster ahead of time actions they require background communications trusted communications and it's like across four or five different organizations sometimes so without revealing too much has that taken a different form now one because of urgency but also two because of the efforts to likely disrupt your work might have increased with, you know, we all uh, don't even, Anna's not going to call me paranoid, but some of you might be worried, but it, it already happened beforehand. One can only imagine you need to be careful, more careful with your communications on disrupting arms manufacturers in this heated
2: time. So how do you folks do that? Absolutely. I think like, um, you know, it's not necessarily that like, the strategies have changed uh, or anything like that, but certainly the urgency has has brought it more to the forefront uh, and really not only increased again this like level of repression of Palestinian activism, but has also brought lots more people into Palestinian activism, right? And we're seeing an awful lot of folks who, you know, in September maybe didn't know what was happening. And and now can't stop thinking about what's happening, right? And so, you know, I think um, the sort of heart and um, just determination that folks are feeling in this moment has really helped us bring out these these large numbers and really helped people kind of see the the importance of not only showing up. Um, but of showing up in a way that's that's safe and secure because we know and we can see again from coast to coast, like we we're seeing people getting fired, suspended, doxxed, anything imaginable that you know the Zionists can do to kind of shut this movement down is happening, but again, like it's that power in numbers, right? Um, and and so You know, we're bringing out this sort of mass movement now, um, but, but we haven't changed the playbook. Everything that we're doing is really based on the successes of a lot of the same tactics during South African apartheid, right? And we saw the power of the labor movement then, not only again in doing things like blocking boats, not delivering South African mail, um all these amazing things that like specifically only folks in the labor movement can do um but we've also saw the success of that right and you know that's why we're continuing on with these tactics and that's why we know these tactics work right because if it wasn't for labor then Canada would have never signed on to uh you know sanctioning South Africa and so you know, for me, that that's what I hold in my heart and my mind when I, you know, engage in these tactics, because we've seen the success, we've seen the importance of the tactics, and we can do it again. And I think, uh, you know, people across Canada are really feeling that, right, and and seeing that in the movement right now.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You talk about doing it safe and securely, but at the same time, you talk about the level of repression. But um, as responsible organizers that you folks are, I see you've started a legal referral service, 50 odd lawyers on hand to assist folks that are feeling that pushback. Give us a taste of what you've heard or what you've seen that would prompt perhaps people don't think that within organized labor that that would be possible, right? You can't fire a union worker. Isn't that the old trope, right? No matter what they do, <laughs> but that's not true. People are, people are losing
2: their jobs and I wish, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, we started this, uh, legal referral with, um, you know, the, uh, Palestine legal center and, uh, another group, um, to really support uh, folks, we've just seen so much repression within people's workplaces. Um, and and this has ranged from, you know, sort of more mild or benign stuff like, uh, oh, you have to take down that, that Palestine poster. Um, we can't be talking about, you know, politics in the workplace, sort of stuff like that. So we have lots of... Um, kind of, uh, fact sheets and, and folks that are able to really like, uh, help each other out in, in determining how they can show solidarity for Palestine within a workplace that is, is, is not, uh, you know, allowing folks to show solidarity for Palestine. Um, and, and then we've also been hearing, uh, all sorts of people being, you know, investigated, suspended, fired, Um, oftentimes not for anything that they've done in their workplaces, but, you know, for things that they've done on their personal social media that they've done outside their work hours. Um, and, And then we're hearing, you know, for myself at York, I know there's, quite a few, um, you know, other TAs and, and such that have been suspended because they talked about Palestine in their course and, and that scared some students, right? So, so these folks are being suspended for, uh, you know, threatening the, the safety of, uh, these students, right? Um, and so the, the, really the, the range of sort of punishments and retribution that we've been seeing has really been astounding, but again, not surprising, right? Because Palestine, Palestinian solidarity has always been met with this really well-organized and well-funded repression, right? Um, and and so it it's on us. As as folks who support Palestine to kind of organize and and get a comprehensive sort of support system going uh, to fight back against this, right? And so um, we've we've definitely had um, you know a few successes. We had a a great chat the other day uh, cross union about how you can uh you know wear a kafia in your workplace and, and not get fired and sort of looking in, in the collective agreements and seeing like what what is the nitty gritty that they're they're trying to pull on us and and what can we sort of say back and stuff like that. A um, kind of know your rights approach. Of, exactly. Um yeah, but but then of course there are the 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 more serious cases that, that do require sort of Lawyers to help folks, uh, you know, push back against these suspensions, uh, push back against these uh firings and and what have you. you know,
1: it's it's funny how all of those uh right wing grifters who spent who who talk so much about freedom of speech and cancel culture and whatnot have been quite silent for the past They're not couple silent. Of months. They're you know, telling me had... I should
0: go to prison. I wish right? they were silent. Well,
1: silent about. You know, cancel culture. Yeah. I haven't heard. I haven't heard the yeah, word free speech advocates do not exist anymore. While.
0: Apparently, at all. They in a they while,
1: <laughs> which just goes to show the hypocrisy behind the whole uh, movement in the beginning. Um, Absolutely.
0: But the, the
1: story yeah. at York
0: of the suspensions, you know, really makes me mad, but also vindicated because I went on a bit of a rant. I think in our well, a few times on our last episode about the centering of that safety in a moment where there's genocide occurring and you know it's one thing to make space for everybody's feelings and then it's another to use that to actually shut down discussions of genocide of ethnic cleansing of a of even a very important political event like no no we can't talk about that because it makes you feel unsafe no at that at that point that is your problem that is a you problem and i hate operating that way i feel like the the tyranny of the majority is a huge problem in society we have to listen to individuals and and make accommodations i do but this is next level right this is i've never seen this before and 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 in fact, when we do say like, hey, that language you use makes me unsafe, like, you know, we have many times around trans youth and all sorts, you know, racist language. Everyone's like, oh, you guys are so fragile. Snowflakes. Get a backbone. And now it's like, oh, well, I'm going to reinterpret everything that you are going to say and make it your meaning. And I'm going to act on that. And everyone is like, yeah, that's cool. Well, not everybody, but the powers that be are like, yep, that's right. Uh, we are definitely into protecting students all of a sudden from feeling unsafe. Meanwhile, at York, there's cops around campus accosting people all the time. They don't care about student safety. I went there. They do not. So like, at no point do you feel safe at York. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with the activists on, on site. But, yeah, it's it's tough kind of asking people to come out and do this work sometimes, too, and also have that onus of keeping them safe when it's such an unpredictable atmosphere. You can tell them, here are your rights. But that doesn't mean their boss is literally just going to fire them anyway. You know, I, no, no, I got a pamphlet that told me I could wear a kafia to work. I know my rights, and it's just like you and a boss, You no know, union, and no hope of anyone having the time to pay attention to your case, maybe, you know? And you know, that might not end well or come blockade. We are following all the, most of the rules. We're not blocking the sidewalk. We're letting some cars pass, whatever, whatever you decide to do, work within whatever peaceful framework. And that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get a peaceful response from police. And I feel like the desperation is also growing, right? Where the, re- the reactions we're getting are just not even making sense. The Canadian government included, you know, you're like, what Am- what is going on? So the, taking steps for the legal referral services is, is important, but do you folks take other steps as well when you do the physical actions where, you know, you can anticipate perhaps hostilities or legal ramifications?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, the I I think really where our strength lies is that there's power in numbers right and so that that one person with their boss in the office talking about a kafila probably not going to go that great but you add nine other employees in a kafila and it changes the the dynamics a bit right and and so the same you know i would say with the blockades like we we are there to to keep each other safe right and we go as a community um and so that means, you know, when people bring their kids, we we tap them on the shoulder before something starts getting spicy and be like, "Hey, would you want to like maybe move over a little further away from the cops right now?" Um, or you know, we we of course you don't also have with like strollers.
0: Uh, That's not
2: uh, exactly right. Uh, one day maybe. <laughs> um, and and I mean, we have folks. Uh, that are there specifically for, for safety that are there specifically to kind of, um, uh, liaise with the police. Um, and that's been really successful because, you know, um, for example, at the, the Incas blockade, there, there were a few arrests. Um, but, but we had, you know, probably like five or six warnings from the police, from our police liaison to say like, you got to move, or you're going to be arrested, right? And so, uh, it's really that you know communication and and really caring for each other, um, but but also recognizing that you know getting arrested and having a sixty dollar trespassing ticket um, is is really kind of small change in comparison with you know. 20,000 people murdered in Gaza, right? And so you know, I think that um, there's there's a bit of a dance that that you know activists kind of have to do uh, between you know kind of our safety and and making a stand, right. So uh, you know sometimes it's worthwhile to to stay there and say, we are not moving until you arrest us. Um, and, and sometimes it's not right. And, and that depends on, you know, the situation, the media, how the cops are. Um, but also, you know, what, what the folks in that position are doing, right? If, if it's, uh, someone without status, obviously we, we don't want them to get arrested. Right. But, um, you know, white academics like myself, uh, it's not really going to be a big issue if I sit in the back of a police car for two hours and get a ticket. Right. And so if if that's what I have to do to let people know that, uh, you know, Incas is sending, you know, weapons to Israel, then, then sometimes, you know, strategically uh, it's worthwhile. Right. But, you know, being able to sort of have, have the trust um, and teamwork, to, to judge those situations, you know, is I think what keeps us safe, especially when confronting the police. Right.
1: You mentioned media. How has there been uh, much media presence at, at, at these blockades? Have you been getting coverage and, and, and is, how, how is, and if so, how has the coverage been?
2: Yeah, fair. Um, uh, we, we've, we've definitely had media come out. Um, you know, am am I a hundred percent happy with with the stories that media writes? Not so much um but I I think you know, when folks like CTV, CBC, Global cover the these these sort of blockades, what's so great about it is whoever's reading that article now sees like, oh my God, Canada is manufacturing these weapons, right? And so maybe the big story is, like, Inca's staff were really mad about this, but uh, they'll always have that little, you know, at, at least two sentences that's like, well, Inca's actually manufactures the glass that goes on, you know, whatever, right?
0: Yeah, they have to explain why you're there, exactly. Right? And Exactly. People are like, why are they that building? Why Pratt and Whitney? It sounds like they make paper, you know? What is it? And, well... They didn't want you to know this, but so, yeah, no matter how far it's buried, I guess your your point does does get across. But sometimes eyes on makes that difference between whether you can push your boundaries a little bit uh, in terms of the blockade. Uh, I have a feeling that that's where Santiago was thinking as well, because.
1: Well, yeah, that, that's what I was thinking uh, is more because you mentioned, you know, arrest and it's like, well, it's, it's one thing getting arrested and nobody's seeing it but if you can get arrested in front of a camera uh, and and to expose you know the use of of colonial violence to to continue the Canadian colonial imperialist project, well that's a very different thing right and and it and it it exposes you know what side Canada's on and who exactly they're willing to protect so I I, I do think, Getting arrested in the right moment is is always, uh, it, obviously not everyone can afford that, but it is an important part of of the movement, I think.
0: I, I picture those Just Stop Oil videos because I find them kind of impactful because they... You know, they seem to have a camera person dedicated to getting that close up of everyone getting arrested. And they all have a speech prepared and it's very personal to them. I'm getting arrested because and these people do not. So they have practiced this. Right. It's it's a it's definitely part of their tactic. Also, you talk about tickets, folks handing out food to hungry people in the United States getting tickets, but then, you know, if we're gonna pay tickets, let's make this part of the demonstration, right? Let's videotape this, let's count how many, let's drive up donations using this repressive tactic against us. So Uh, I want to ask about the smaller actions, though. It's great to see 200 people show up and then have power in numbers. But you folks have done a lot with a little sometimes, because sometimes I, you know, I read the tweet and then I open the picture. And so the tweet will say, we've blocked some crappy company that's making weapons, right? I fill in the blank. And I'll open the picture and it'll be like six comrades with their arms out and signs stretched. And I'm just like, you folks are awesome. Because I think some people don't want to start initiatives or they feel like they haven't built critical mass to shut it down. I mean, I guess maybe they envision a full ring around the factory and hundreds and hundreds of people laying their bodies down on the road and sometimes it really doesn't take that much sometimes it's just the a small paper line of resistance that is so visual and in the way that it, it does its job and although it, yeah, like I would love 200 people out at every action with an extra lawyer and a police liaison but also if you have 8 people and an arms manufacturer in the industrial complex near you, you can disrupt the morning shift, right? So maybe you don't have an all day. You can't shut this down forevermore. You can't stop every weapon, but bit by bit, right? Drop by drop. And maybe you start at eight, then it's 10. And then it does get to 200 because then Anna hears about what you've been doing and she sends some folks your way and boosts the signal. And that's how it all works, right? So you folks don't start at 200 and... And so, yeah, I'm very proud when I see those, the big ones, and even more so the small ones, because I know that can be scary, too, when you show up at an action, you feel kind of lame, there's no one else there, and then you see someone else with a sign, and then you see one other person, you're like, as long as I got one person, (laughs) I'm not by myself. But, you know, I, I don't suggest anybody tries to block an arms facility by yourself. But small, small acts of resistance, too do build capacity over a while. So, yeah, those ones got to make you proud as well, Anna.
2: Absolutely. Every every little bit
0: counts, right? Where do you find the time? I imagine, like, labor for Palestine is full of... I've never been so happy to be unemployed because I have all the time to do what I need to do here, but the repercussions are very few. Like, no one's calling my boss. You folks have time constraints, like most of you are working jobs and then putting on all of these actions and then creating referral services and doing teach-ins. And because we've only really scratched the surface of the work that you're doing, right? Like, I like to focus on the blockades because I want everyone in the streets. But like, there's so much other work that goes involved in lobbying and like you said, resolution writing and stuff. So please, like, do you have staff? Is this all volunteer and do you have superpowers?
2: <laughs> um, it is all volunteer. Um, our our superpower is uh, still being awake. Um, but but really, what it is is uh, you know it's not only like the passion that that keeps us going, but really like to see how the movement continues to grow and build is so important. Because not only does that, you know, continue to motivate, you know, me who's been at it for a bit, but, like, getting more people in to lighten the load, like, that's how we make things sustainable, right? And so, you know, I think, like, the folks who who are in Labour for Palestine and, and most of these other movements and groups, right, it's a labor of love. It's a labor of passion. Um, and that's what keeps us going because we see the injustice in the world and we see our ability to do something about it. Um, but, but bringing more people in and, and getting, you know, these, these kind of ideas and tasks spread out a bit, that, that's what helps keep it going. Right. Because, you know, as you might imagine, 11 people cannot you know create a mass movement um, and and so you know we could start it off we could get um, all the website up and going good right but it it, it takes other people too, to the to join us and really uh, keep things going right and not just like literally but also that that you know uh feeling of of not being in isolation of Seeing that, that your work matters and that uh, people are, you know, picking up what you're putting down.
1: What's the saying? Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Right? I love that. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's what that reminded me of. Because it that, that's how it always starts, you know. And it always feels, you know, like an impossible giant thing. And then you put into work and... Things change, right?
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I love that. I know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing because of the smile on your face after these two months. Like, I mean, just even the work alone. Forget the horrors, right? Who can? Because at some point you have to just kind of put that aside. But Anna, you can't see her, but she has such joy in talking about this work. And when she says growing capacity and building movement, I mean, just absolutely lights up and appears to have a lot of energy, despite talking about how tired she is. Um, Anna, what can people do? And let's speak to unionized and non-unionized folks who are listening. What can they do to help your work?
2: Um... So it's not my work; it's our work, right? I always um, do that and- <laughs> with my guys. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's not just Anna; <laughs> she's the only one I can see right now. But what Fair. can they do to help
2: all y'all? All right, and so you know, every I, I would say like every little bit helps, right? And it's it's the small stuff too, like talking to your coworkers, talking to the people in your life, telling them what's going on. Telling them why you care and why they should care. But also, you know, joining Labor for Palestine, joining our campaign, Labor Against Apartheid. You know, I know that uh, for myself and my union, uh, we have so much of our money uh, from York going into uh, some really kind of gross, skeezy things that we'd like to divest from, right? So doing that research into your own sort of workplace. Where is your pension going? Where Where is your workplace investing in uh, doing these little campaigns, little lunch and learns, right? Like anyone, even if you're not unionized, can get a crew together for lunch and be like, hey, there's this fantastic workshop that teaches us about uh, why Palestine is a labor issue, you know? Um, and, and again, like, um, obviously being in a union makes it a little, little safer. Um, but it's not the only sort of workplace that can organize, right? Like, uh, you know, if, if Pratt and Whitney folks spent they the unionized? afternoon, uh, I, I doubt it, but I have Someone no idea. that, man. Right. <laughs> uh, but if they're not, and they spent the afternoon just kind of talking about what their workplace is doing, like who cares if they're union or not? They have that labor power, and and together, you know, uh, it, it's like what Santiago said, right? Like you can't fight that mass power, right? And and so, you know, I I I think of. In a, a non-Palestine example, you know, the power of Starbucks workers to start unionizing and really get some rights for themselves, like, all over the U.S., right? Like, it doesn't take an actual union to be in place for you to start making a difference in your workplace. But also, if you have a union, it makes it a lot easier because you can start, you know— asking your union like oh why aren't we passing these resolutions why is our pension uh you know investing in these weapons manufacturers um why aren't we having you know our local meetings where we focus on on palestine and and what labor unions there are asking us right better yet Um, hold
0: the meeting bring the resolution right yeah and you'll teach people how
2: to do that exactly Yeah. So, you know, again, I think like even even if you're the only person in your workplace that knows what's going on, like talk to people, build that mass movement. Right. There's there's, you know, um, it always has to start with with one person, a small group. Right. But we're seeing before our very eyes, like the power of a small group of people to make global change. Um, and, and that's what, you know, motivates me and hopefully is, is motivating listeners, you know?
0: Well, I, I think you've done just that. Thank you so much, Anna, for joining us for one. I mean, that's just an hour out of your day. We do appreciate it, but i much more appreciate the work that you and your comrades are doing immensely. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, You folks are modern day revolutionaries, and I very much will make sure that we boost your signal as often as possible. Folks will find links to find Anna and Labor for Palestine, their victory website. We will put as much as possible in the show notes so that people can plug right into your work and catch you at the next blockade. Yes. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.